Hello, this is Greg Pock, and you're listening to the Pockcast. A few months ago, I ran a Kickstarter for a digital book of Kickstarter advice called Kickstarter Secrets, which is slated for release at the end of the month. You can pre-order it right now at kickstarter-secrets.com. As stretch goals for that book, I interviewed a number of amazing Kickstarter creators. Now I'm running those interviews as a podcast series right here on the podcast. Today's interview is with Drew Westfall, the logistical and coding genius who kept the wheels on the bus during the fulfillment stage of the Code Monkey Save World Kickstarter that Jonathan Colton and I ran in 2013. Code Monkey Save World is a graphic novel based on Jonathan's songs that ended up becoming Kickstarter's highest grossing original comics project ever. Drew's got tremendous insights into all of the logistical challenges you have to manage to get tens of thousands of physical and digital objects to thousands of backers in a timely way. Here we go. Drew, thank you so much for joining me today, being willing to talk about all this stuff. Uh, uh, you are um, the person who made the Code Monkey Kickstarter run smoothly, basically. It, it, it became a monster and you tamed the monster for us. Uh, and so your expertise just seemed uh, totally key. Uh, uh, you know, you seem like a key person to talk to for this for this book, this Kickstarter Secrets book. So I appreciate you uh, you coming on board here. For sure, it's my pleasure. And you know, I'm, it was a really fun project to work on. And you know, I helped get it to people, but you made it awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and with a specific emphasis on. The thing, the skill set you had acquired that came in, you know, before you started on this project that came in handy for running the Kickstarter in the end. Um, like, what, what was it in your background that, that set you up so that you were ready to tackle this, this kind of project? Sure. Um, well, I studied computer science at Yale, which had, there's an emphasis in computer science on kind of uh, breaking down problems into their uh, constituent pieces and trying to systematically solve them as much as possible. And actually a lot of what we worked on with the Kickstarter was just kind of going from going from the tiers proposed on the Kickstarter to a finite list of products and exactly what was entailed in each tier, which wasn't completely obvious. And I, until we kind of, until I sort of put that in a relational database, which is just kind of a spreadsheet on steroids. <laughs> Um, kind of running running the scenarios about like what exactly have we promised? How many of these things are we now going to need to send out? We didn't really know the scope of exactly what we were looking at. So there was definitely a data focused um, and like data driven aspect to what I think I brought to the project. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other piece is that I've been working with uh, musicians and creators since. Um, I left college, specifically Jonathan Colton, for ages, um, helping him on tour and helping him with his cruise, the Joko cruise. And there are just a lot of um, logistics in there um, that, you know, it, I, I think jumping into those different logistical fields kind of became what my main job with him um, and for him and, and with some other musicians was. And then finally, I think the piece was just knowing what it's like to work with creative people, which means generally there are, it, that there's going to be like a giant splat that has a lot of great ideas in it, um, but that it's maybe not going to be super structured. And if you try with a creative person to make them structure their ideas too much, or I, I, like, I guess if you try in like a legalistic way, 
or um, like a super detailed way at first, you kind of scare them off. Uh, <laughs> and I think like coaxing, coaxing, coaxing really detailed, um, like hard numbers and hard decisions out of creative people without scaring them away. Or And if you're doing a Kickstarter for yourself, finding a way to coax those details out of yourself without scaring yourself away uh, is definitely a lot of uh, a lot of what I worked on with, with you guys and on the project as well. <laughs> so we were being we you were you were the artist whisperer and we were being whispered to and we didn't even realize it. That's that's brilliant. I just really wanted to trick you guys into uh, a very a very constrained uh, problem space. <laughs> that's great. Um, so uh, on a practical level, you had also I mean you had like. You'd done stuff like finding merch, uh, create like you you'd worked with vendors who created merch, and then you had dealt with mailings before. Is that right, or is that that's, uh... that's actually totally true? I it's, it was years ago at this point, but yes, I um I had done I sold merch on the road with Jonathan Colton for a while, um, and I also did a lot a few different um, direct to fan promotions with uh, they might be giants out in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. they did this thing, instant fan club. I did that. Um, I was one of those uh, supporters where you like paid. Uh, I, it was like a hundred or a hundred and fifty bucks or something, and then during the course of the year, they sent you stuff. Uh, yeah, I wrote. Uh, I, I did the order. I, I wrote the order stuff for that, and then worked with their fulfillment people on ah. on that. Um, so that I, and that. Like, <laughs> I didn't even know you were involved in that. Well, I got all my stuff, so you did a very good job. Um, yeah, I was I was a little bit less involved in the on the ground stuff than I was with Code Monkey Save World. Um, Code Monkey Save World was an, uh, like I definitely learned some new stuff working on Code Monkey Save World. Um, but yeah, that was that was my first kind of introduction to working directly with the warehouse. Was working on the uh, They Might Be Giants Instant Fan Club, and that's an interesting model. I mean, they basically did their own their own in house Kickstarter right. type platform for accepting pre-orders with kind of a, in a variety of different configurations and they in-housed it to avoid that that big kickstarter fee and because they, they knew that they had a, a pretty large existing fan base yeah they also capped the number of folks who could do it which i thought was fascinating i think it was capped at a thousand right it's yeah it was actually the cap was maybe a little bit soft um oh, okay but um yeah i think that you know it was one of those things where like oh well we crossed a thousand like all right we'll shut it down in 12 hours <laughs> okay yeah, yeah yeah but yeah that i think that i mean creating that urgency yeah I, I think that they did that in sort of the same way that kickstarter kind of has that the goal like how close are you to the goal how far are you over the goal what are the stretch goals i think with they might be giants the the thing that was driving people to come and and get it right away was that there was a real finite number of these things and like creating that I mean watching watching the, these artists Jonathan Colton and they might be giants specifically and, and a few others that I've worked with kind of navigate this new online uh, business sphere where you kind of try and connect more directly with your super fans right. uh, and like make those uh, make those connections more profitable because you know the, the CDs dying uh, touring is like one of the only ways to make money this is kind of the new one of the one of the ways that I see a lot of artists navigating um, to bring in money uh, nowadays. Right. So, um, well, let, let's give people a little bit of background about Code Monkey Save World. So, I, and, and uh, tell me if I'm getting this right. As I recall, 
Um, so Jonathan and I, Jonathan Colton, singer songwriter, internet superstar, guy I went to college with, has done a million songs based on uh, uh, just uh, that feature these great characters. A lot of them with kind of fun sci-fi hooks, and uh, we decided to make a graphic novel uh, together. Since I'm a writer, and um, and uh, and and we ran, we put together this big Kickstarter. We launched it, and I, I, I'm trying to remember exactly when we brought you on. I, 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 am I correct that we brought you on after we had launched, when we sort of realized, oh, my God, we need a lot of help? Or did we do it before we launched? Um, the way that I remember it happening is that you guys launched this Kickstarter, and I saw it on Twitter um, and wrote to Jonathan and was like, do you want, um, you, want some, you want some help with this, buddy? <laughs> Um, and, and he was like, yes, please. <laughs> yeah, because we, you know, like uh, our initial plan, you know, I mean, we, we were like, oh, maybe we'll, you know, like our initial goal was to raise $39,000 um, in order to make a 48-page comic book or do a 60-page comic book that would have 48 story pages. Um, and the thing ballooned. I mean, it went, it, it went, it was amazing. We love our backers. Thank you so much if you back this thing. Uh, and the thing, we ended up with like 8,000 something backers. Um, you know, originally we thought we might have a thousand backers. If you have a thousand backers, that's, I mean, that's a lot, but it's kind of, that, that feels more manageable, but the thing just grew and grew and we kept, and this is, <laughs> this is my fault just because it was like, oh, people asked about posters. Hey, Jonathan, let's also offer posters. And, uh, he was like, hey, you know, let's not go too crazy. And then uh, I was like, Hey, and we can also offer challenge coins. <laughs> and so we kept adding these rewards and, and it just became enormous. I mean, I loved every second of that and uh, I have zero regrets about all of it. But one of the big reasons I have zero regrets is because you came in to help us organize all of those crazy logistics. It just got so big. Um, at some point you, I remember you put together a chart and you, you found that there were, you had some ridiculously high number of different kinds of packages that had to be put together. It was like, uh, or, or like there was a ridiculous high number of items and then a ridiculously high number of different kinds of packages. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to see, it looks like the back end I built on the database for that is still running. So oh, I'm wow. going to hit, uh, it takes a little while to load. Oh, that's cool. While that's loading, let me actually talk about that a bit because, all right. So I've run a couple. I've run three Kickstarters after Code Monkey Save World, and with all those Kickstarters, I've used a service called BackerKit, um, which basically it's an online service. It takes your data from the Kickstarter and it and it and it allows you to just crunch that data and output different kinds of lists. So it becomes much easier to figure out who uh, who gets what, you know, who's been promised what, and um, and and it lets you put you know output really uh, clean mailing lists and handle all kinds of stuff. When we did the Code Monkey Save World project, that that there was no backer kit, I believe, and um, you basically created that. You did a custom version of that, which is what you're exploring right now, right? That's what you're posting. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, backer kit was released about midway through uh, what we worked on. Oh, okay, gotcha. Code Monkey Save World, um, and I'd already we'd already kind of gotten pretty deep into it, and there were some specific things that backer kit didn't yet offer for right. example we um we were offering like redemption codes for people to view the code monkey save world comic online depending right. on which um product they had uh they purchased from you guys right um, and i do have the stats up here so we had eight hundred eight thousand three hundred and ninety two backers um 
which translated into a total of 8,351 orders for stuff. So some percentage didn't ask for anything. Right. Um, it broke out into a total, if you include digital products, of 92,336 products. Uh, <laughs> but fortunately, only 24,789 of those products were physical. Oh, yes. Only only 24,780. That's totally manageable then. And, and, there, and only 6,904 people had physical orders. <laughs> and, um, 5,595 people um, had domestic shipping, uh, 894 had international shipping, and 415 were Canada, which is a separate category due to postage on right. our site. Yeah. Um, and we ended up we ended up collecting 99.54% of all the addresses we needed. Um, and Yeah, uh, I, actually, I, I, they, they still trickle in. I fulfilled one uh, just last month that had come in like two, two almost three years later. So. Yeah, once we crossed uh, once we crossed ninety nine percent, we actually took everything that was left and put it into a spreadsheet. And uh, Anna on our side, Greg actually has been she fulfilled the Code Monkey Save World um, order the other day. Oh my gosh! So, yeah, they still do. They still do come in. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Okay. So so it uh, clearly this became a massive project. We weren't going to do this out of our basement. Um, and, uh, so you, you put together this software, um, that allowed you to break down all of these different items, figure out, uh, uh, what, you know, like what all the different kind of packages would look like. And, um, and that was enormous, but at the same time you were like, you used to, well, tell us about the different tools you used because you also, uh, put us on a, um, you had us all join an, an online like project website, project management website, so that we were updating each other about the different tasks we had, and you were assigning different tasks to us, making sure that we were all doing our different things in time. And this, I mean, this to be clear, this kind of stuff was, the stuff that you were primarily responsible for was all of the sort of extraneous rewards, like the t-shirts and the buttons and the, or, uh, the, the challenge coins and uh, the posters and, and so you were wrangling all that. I was doing most of the wrangling of the actual production of the book itself, um, in terms of direct contact with the artists and, and creative team and the printing house and all that for the actual comic book. But on a project like this, where we had so many separate rewards, um, we had we weren't just making the comic book; we were making like twelve different things. And so you you were taking care of eleven of those. Um so so yeah. tell us tell us about the different tools you use to organize all that. Sure. So um I got us onto a project management tool called Basecamp. There it uh, is, yeah. And uh the real killer feature I think of Basecamp is that it allows you to create a series of to-do lists and or calendar items and those themselves become email threads. Right. Um, so at the time, that was that was what I was using to kind of just keep track of the world of stuff that was left to do. Um, and you know, I I filled out kind of a giant series of to do lists about what it was, and I had a general idea in my head about kind of the order of those things. And then you know, I would check in once or twice a week and sort of see where we were on getting these things done. And I, I had also, I mean, just in Excel put together like a basic timeline structure of what I thought, uh, how, how I thought that we could do. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would check in 
I would check in with that, and that kind of was married in my, I mean, just in my understanding with the set of to-do list items. And I would just kind of pester pester people and hope that we could get that to go and I uh, get, get those things moving. And we were pretty good at sticking to our timeline. We obviously were late. Um, yeah, we, and well, the lateness, and I, I've, I've said this in public many times. I, I think the big problem, the one of the key issues, or the things that caused the lateness, was just totally my fault. In that, um, during the course of the campaign, we expanded the book from forty-eight story pages to eighty story pages, um, mm-hmm. and I didn't really, and you know, we 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 knew that that would work budget-wise and everything else, but yeah. I didn't really sit down and think through the simple. <laughs> Very obvious fact that it takes longer to to produce eighty pages than it does to do forty eight pages. So, um, and we had buffer time in our schedule to begin with. But you know, then then the other part of that too is that I I wasn't thinking about the fact that that buffer time included uh, the holidays, Thanksgiving, and uh, and then once you go past Thanksgiving, like we were going to deliver in December, um, I think. Right? Was that our original promise, or was it November even? But uh, what, yeah, I'm looking at one of our schedules, and we said that we were going to have everything shipped by the 17th of December. But I think that's that's the second version of the proposed schedule. In our first version, we had oh wow, yeah, we pushed everything by a few months because yeah. in the first version of our schedule, we were going to select our fulfillment house in August and ship by the middle of October. Yeah, right. We because did, because I think we promised to ship in uh, like our our. Our initial promise was to ship in November, which we blew. Um, uh-huh. But uh, but yeah, and and also, so if you if you plan to ship in November and if you blow that date, then you are really in trouble because then you hit Thanksgiving and uh, the winter holidays, all of those you know, you, Christmas and New Year's. Um, and that and that drives up shipping prices, and it also drives up manufacturing prices because anyone that makes trinkets or gugas or anything is going to be slammed with the holidays and same with anyone who does any kind of logistics um and that's like yeah when you get into the when you get into winter you have like the year for doing logistics gets there's just this like slow time warp this thing around christmas and and then the u.s post office increases rates usually the second or third week of january right so yeah, so you, you get into trouble, but um, sorry, we got I kind of got distracted on uh, on uh, on taking the blame for that, but uh, but but you kept us so you kept us on, um, but yeah, so you had the you had backer kit, uh, I mean not backer kit, you had um, base camp, uh, and you were keeping us on track there uh, as much as we could be kept on track. Um, oh yeah, you were talking about other tools. It was just you know when when we when we would miss a deadline, we we redo the schedule, and I'd work to get you guys to buy into the new one and right I, I, that that was i think knowing what the plan is even if the plan's really flexible is just uh, is as important as like sticking to the original one absolutely so um now the uh so did you were there any other sort of digital tools that you use that you would recommend people to think about well, I mean, I certainly would recommend that people check out Backerkit, and I, I believe that there may be a, a competing product nowadays um, because you know, rolling your own software is not usually the best solution for people. Yeah, uh, it's well, it's it's, but, it's it's frankly beyond most people can't do it. You know. So. Yeah, that, that, that's one of the reasons it's often not the best solution. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really, pretty much otherwise, the tools that I used were Excel 
and um, and then again this this SQL database tied to our um, fulfillment system, right? Uh, which is and, which, and and that is what Backerkit would replace for folks who can't do that kind of programming, right? Yeah, I mean, and then what and what I, like the biggest single use for our database was that I. Um, you know, when right at when I came onto the project, my first, the first thing I did was to kind of go through and read every single Kickstarter update you've done, and kind of like read <laughs> what is this maniac promise? A list of things that you promised, <laughs> yeah. and then I would, and then like that would turn into, and then I would I, I imported the spreadsheet from Kickstarter of who had bought which order tier um, to the system, and then that would spit, and then. I could compute after that how many permutations of orders there were. Right. Um, and so in the end, it came out to, it looks like about 48, 48 different permutations of the order, um, of orders totally. Um, and, and what was neat once we got there was that we had, uh, I mean, actually, really, there were like four that were almost everyone had ordered just for one of four permutations of the order. And then everything else, there were, there were way fewer of. Yeah. So we kind of focused our optimization effort in um, the most common permutations of the order. Right. So, um, okay, so after putting all that data together, putting it all together, figuring out schedule, looking at, uh, at, at all the different things that were promised, you had to um, track down vendors to make the different things that were promised. Um, what are some of the things you what 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 kind of advice you have about uh, picking a vendor like to do t-shirts or to do the mugs how did you make those choices and and what do you recommend people do when they when they're thinking about that um i think that the internet has made people wary of middlemen uh in a way that actually really is not helpful on a project like this we went we went through a small um shop that does a lot of promotional um merchandise merchandising and quoting mm -hmm. for a number of our pieces and we kind of gave them the first go ahead to quote us and then they would deal with actually selecting a manufacturer taking our specs and, and giving them over to the manufacturer in a format that worked with them and then they'd help us manage the shipping and tracking um uh, their names were dick and joel stein uh, we can and in the notes to this we can publish their contact information great uh, I'm sure that they'd. I'm sure they'd love that. And how did you? How did you find them? Were they folks you'd worked with before? I had worked with. Yeah, I'd worked with them. They were. They worked with Paul and Storm, um, who are a musical comedy duo that I also plan the Jonathan Colton Cruise with. So we had used them for a bunch of Jonathan Colton Cruise stuff, um, and uh, so when, and we knew that they had good good leads on stuff like challenge coins and mugs. Yeah. Um, so they and they handled the t-shirts too, right? Or they actually did not. Our t-shirts went through a company called Forward Printing, who I'm, which I found through a friend of my sister's, and they're in the Bay, um, the Bay Area. And what was great about them is they did they do um, rather than that plastisol printing, which is those um, like when you, when you feel the front of your shirt and it's like got yeah. that like thick layer on it. Yeah, it's kind of gummy. They do like a nicer version of kind of ink, um, like matching the inks, and, and their shirts were a little bit more. But I mean, that Code Monkey Save World shirt actually came out 
really great. I'm just wearing it the other day. Yeah, I've got a, actually I've got a friend who uh, comes to cons fairly often wearing that shirt, and uh, it's, it's like three years old and it still looks great. So it hasn't faded horribly or anything. Um, and let me look at the other products that we did. I mean, you you had, you found the printer for the book. Yeah, so I I had worked with a yeah we used a, what was at the time was called Le Bon Fond. Now they've been now they are Marquee Printing in uh, in Canada. We use them to print the book, and that's uh, a, a printer that I had um, uh, that does a lot of uh, comic books just in general. And uh, they had been recommended to me by other comic book folks. I used them for a different project before we did Code Monkey Save World, uh, and they were great. Um, and then I and then the other. I'll be, basically, all, uh, yeah, and then the printed stuff I also uh, found the vendors for because I'd worked with a company called Uprinting, um, which was actually just a company that I, I, you know, at some point I wanted to do postcards a few years back for a project, and I just did some searching online, found a website that looked, you know, professional and good, and they seemed, uh, I, didn't, I don't think anybody recommended them to me. Maybe, maybe somebody did. Maybe I asked on Twitter and some helpful person on Twitter pointed me their way. I can't remember now. But I had used them before and they'd done a great job on uh, postcards and stuff I'd done. So they were uh, easy, uh, an easy pick uh, to do all the rest of our printing. Um, and they're very competitively priced. So that stuff went... Online print shops, I think, generally are the way to go on those posters. I've, I've only ever used services like Uprinting. And, yeah. And you, know, you find them with Google and they the price per unit is just super low. Right. So then we did, yeah, so we did the mugs and the challenge coins. And, and as you say, you went through Dick and Joel Stein for those. Yeah. We did, uh, what else did we produce? We did Let's the... See, um, we, had the uh, we had a sticker pack. I think that was through... That U also, yeah, that went through Uprinting too. Yeah, that was a tricky one. Um, because we, uh, yeah, we, we just went back and forth on, we, we talked to a lot of people and those looked really expensive. <laughs> Yeah. Um, that was one of those ones where we're like, oh no, what have we gotten ourselves into? Exactly, oh. because it sounds so simple. We promised stickers with, uh, yeah. and stickers are cheap. But um, when you get to uh, when you have a big project and you're talking to a fulfillment house, um, fulfillment houses will often charge per touch, meaning you know per item that they have to put in. So putting in one extra sticker. Like if you if you promise stickers, that implies more yeah. than one sticker. So if you if you have to put in two or three stickers, your you know the cost per package may go up seventy five cents, uh, which can be a lot if you're shipping nine thousand packages or or in our case six thousand packages. Um, yeah, and I'm 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 definitely happy at some point to talk about how we were able to, and this was something I learned for Code Monkey Save World, how we were able to drive down that fulfillment house price. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and it, we yeah. ended up um, we ended up getting about half, like getting it at half the price of the initial quotes we were getting. Once we learned how to structure our quote, um, yeah, let, or our, our request for a quote. D, let's definitely talk about that. But first, let me just check, uh, just real quick, with the uh, with the uh, with picking vendors. It sounds like both of us either had prior experience with vendors, or we uh, we got. Um, Recommendations from friends, actually. Uh, uh, is, does that sound accurate? And, and I think so I mean, and we did we did a lot of quoting with the sticker pack. I know that we, we you know we were after we were asking the Steins their thoughts on that, um, as as well as looking at every manufacturer online and just kind of looking through you know like what what are the specs of what we told people we'd give them and what are what are the different configurations of products that are that satisfy those specs? And right. I think we ended up. Kind of finding something that was a totally fine sticker pack, 
but that was able to drive the unit cost down and also make it so that rather than needing to pick four stickers, there was a some way of packaging them together. Yeah, I mean, I what I uh, the, the final the 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 way it all worked out in the end was I um, I. Uh, I'd done enough work with you printing that I was, uh, and I sh I'm sure they would have just talked to me anyway, but I called them up and uh, talked to them very specifically. I was like, hey, what would it cost to do a sheet of stickers that you can peel off, like a custom sheet where you have, uh, and, and the, the term for this is die cut or kiss cut uh, stickers. So there's a, it's, you know, you've got a sheet, it's got the little, uh, 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 the, the half cut that lets you peel a, peel a sticker out from inside the sheet. Um, and we ended up doing a, a sheet, a little a vertical sheet. I think it was like maybe, uh, maybe, maybe three by five or two and a half by five or something like that. And it had, I think three or four different, uh, peel up stickers on it. Um, and they, uh, they were able to do that and, and they were able to do it for a very reasonable price. I mean, that kind of custom sticker can be really expensive. Uh, but, uh, we were lucky to get a good price from the uprinting folks. Well, and the number of touches, if they'd been one sticker per sheet, which is how we saw it online, yeah. would have been really bad. Yeah, um, yeah it would have killed us. I mean, I mean, because you can do, you can just do regular stickers incredibly cheaply. You know, like, uh, like we could have done a bunch of individual three by three or two by two stickers. Um, but yeah, then you're, it's, you're, you're, it's another dollar or something to put all of those into a package. Um, the, that was one of the kind of unexpected things that we learned as we were going. And one of the nice things about us kind of doing manufacturing and fulfillment house selection in parallel is that we, I don't, I mean, I didn't know how fulfillment houses charged exactly and how we were going to get treated uh, on this stuff until, until we started the quoting process. And if, for example, we'd already ordered all the stickers before we got into that, we would have been really, I mean, we probably would have had to rubber band uh, like five stickers together into packs ourselves. Yes, and that would have been a nightmare because the stickers went to everybody who had a physical uh, uh, reward. So that would have been like the maximum number of items. You know what I mean? Like we would have literally had to do that with 6,000 uh, stickers. It would have been completely mind-numbing. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, so the, I, I mean, I guess the lesson there is know how you're going to ship something before you make something. <laughs> no, yeah, know kind of what the, know the general lay of the land on, you know, what like, you know, just like think through like, oh, in order to build this thing, people are going to need to touch X number of items a certain number of times. And that like, as that number grows, what you pay is going to grow. Yeah, totally. All right. So what was the hardest thing to manufacture? Let's stick on the, let's just stay on that for now. Well, like any unexpected surprises in the manufacturing process of these different rewards? Huh. Um, I mean, I know that we spent a long time, you know, that one of the other sources of unexpected delays was that we had this fantastic art from Talk that you had put together, Greg, and we wanted to adapt it into onto our products. Um, but getting, you know, we, we found a, a graphic designer who we really liked who sort of helped us prepare that. But getting, getting those designs turned around and getting them approved and, like, making sure that we had stuff that we liked was a little bit of a delay. Um, yeah for us. But, you know, I think, I think that really quoting was probably more challenging than actually getting the items. And, and what was nice is that by the time we, we needed to select a fulfillment house before we really began doing our ordering, because there was going to be so much stuff that we couldn't receive it ourselves. Yeah. Um, 
And so, you know, if we'd had, if we'd received products that had real defects, I think that that would have put us, or, or that, we, you know, we got it and it was really low quality. I think that would have been a big problem. But I, we did a, a combination of good work and getting lucky on selecting vendors. Um, and I think by the time the orders went in, it was actually pretty trouble free. Yeah, uh, I think the some of the biggest holdups were, uh, as I recall, were just pulling the trigger finally on getting a graphic designer in to do some stuff. I think I was resisting that for a while, thinking, "Oh, you know, I can, I, you know, I'm, I do, I, 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 I do posters, I do book covers and yeah. stuff. I could, I could do this T-shirt thing." But then, you know, it's a, it's another skill set, and you know, we we had the budget, we and and it just was smart to spend it and to get somebody who really knows what they're doing and do it right. Um, just like I wouldn't try to uh, draw the book. <laughs> yeah. You know, like why that wasn't a place we should we should skimp. But I but yeah, I, I recall like I think I probably held that up a bit. Um, uh, just you know by not. I, I, that's where you probably were wrangling me without my realizing I was being wrangled in a good way. Uh, and then you got us to just hire somebody. So. It ended up, I mean, it, it, you know, it's just, it's like, you know, you could give yourself a back rub, but it's not really as nice. <laughs> does it? Uh. Yeah. Now on, you know, on, it's funny because on some projects, you know, you should just do that by yourself. You know what I mean? Like that's, I mean, in a way that's the, that's the charm of it. And, and if you know what you're doing, and if you know if it works, it works. Like I did the design for the uh, for the stickers, and I you know I think that was great. But um, uh, but uh, but yeah, for for other things, I mean you know it's it's a case by case basis, and you just kind of got to feel it. But yeah, definitely with the t-shirts, the t-shirts that um, what was her name again? I, I I I've forgotten her name, which is bad. Jesse Bunning. There you go. So the but yeah, the design that Jesse did on the. Um, on the uh, uh, on those T-shirts was just great, you know, and it it, it brought elements to it that I would not be. Uh, yeah, I'm not a I'm not I'm not a pro, and uh, and uh, a T-shirt is a special thing. It's its own little work of art, and she did. Yeah, it's fun. It. I mean, it's it's just great. You know, we I think that like that you can't really place enough of value also on just that. Like, we already had so much on our plate. Like, you were getting that. You were getting the book done. Yep. Um, we were trying to find out how the heck to ship all this stuff because this was the biggest fulfillment project I'd ever worked on at, at the time in such detail. Um, and you know, to have a to when we were at that scale to have a professional who was gonna who just sent us you know she sent us like four shirt designs and we were able to pick one, ask for a few changes and, and get it back. I mean, just it was definitely definitely taking took, took a load off. Right. So. Uh... So let's talk a little bit about preparing, you know, like like planning your packages for for uh, fulfillment house to to deal with, or even if you're doing it at home alone, uh, these things are still handy because if you're doing it at home alone, yes, having four separate stickers is going to take you longer to manage than having a single sticker. What are some other strategies for putting those packages together and uh, and, and uh, preparing for that 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 uh, that came in handy? Yeah, I mean, there were a few. There are a few elements to preparing for. It's, it's kind of preparing the warehouse, like to get a bid from various warehouses, and also um, that that would sort of apply when you're planning for yourself. And the first thing, again, was figuring out how much of everything we'd promise people, mm -hmm. and that not only allowed us to quote, but it allowed us to anticipate the approximate volume 
that would need to be received. And warehouses will charge you to hold stuff for a long period of time. So there's this sort of tension where you want to get things early and you want to start the relationship with your warehouse early, but you also don't want to pay them to hold um, a ton of inventory on your behalf that is not going to um, get used right away. Um, and we ended up we ended up sort of working it out where our warehouse would receive things in a timely enough fashion that they weren't going to charge us to store it because they were making enough money off of just doing the fulfillment. Right. Um, and then the next thing, you know, and the, the specific way that I did this was tied to my custom uh, database solution, but it was breaking things into um, like how many different order permutations there were um, and ordering them by frequency and naming them. And that was how we started quoting, was we just kind of had all the permutations of the order and we'd send it to people and ask them to do it. Um, and that was when we started getting really high bids. And eventually, looking at it and talking with these different warehouses, we realized that, sure, there are 50, 46 permutations, but there's actually like a base permutation that's inside a large number of them. Yeah. And we were able to, and they call this kidding, which is different from pick and pack. So pick and pack is where they, you know, take a piece and they put it in the box and basically each piece that they take and put in the box is a touch and they charge you a certain amount per touch. Um, but what you can do is if you have like a basic, uh, a base permute, a base set of items that's in a ton of packages. And we found, I think four base permutations or something. Uh -huh. um, they can, they then often will charge hourly to kit those basic permutations together. Oh. And then when you do pick and pack for your larger permutation, for, for like the big set of permutations, then taking that kit is just a single touch. Oh, that's brilliant. I did not even know that's how we, uh, well done, sir. I didn't know that that's how we managed all that. Um. I, it was really, it was very fun when I realized that. Cause it like, you know, you, you look, at first you look at this list and you're like, there is no sense Everything is custom, and there is no way to simplify. But there is, you know, like for for us, for example, like our one thing that we needed to kit together for almost every single order was a sticker pack and a trade paperback. Yep. Um, so, and that was that was at the base of every order that didn't have a signed book in it, um, more or less. Right. And so, the first thing that they did was rubber band a sticker pack inside books. And they just did that for every single book that we had. So that, that like reduced the number of touches when it came to pick and pack on that. Um, and that, so yeah, the, the, and the way that I ended up doing it was I just kind of ha like built out, uh, built out a spreadsheet of the permutation. I mean, it's kind of hard. I forget exactly how it works, but you know, it's just kind of, you, you look at it and you, you write out the permutations and I kind of had it in this format where it was like one times add on sticker pack comma one times trade paperback and, you know, then it, like, it would get longer and longer and longer. Um, and I just kind of started, like, staring at it for yeah. a while. Well, and looking at it, like, what, how can I pull these things out into, into, into even bigger, uh, into bigger numbers and kind of come up with, like, a base set of kits? We well, had three, I think, or four. Yeah, just thinking out loud, that, that base kit would have included the, the, tra the paperback, the sticker, and then two posters, because we had a mini poster for Code Monkey Save World and a mini poster for uh, Princess Who Saved Herself. Um, well, that actually, um, there was one, and we called it Pack Type A, 
-hmm. There was a group that only received the add-on sticker pack and the trade paperback. So that was really that was one order. We we shipped 2500 2400 of those. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, right. And the posters went with folks who had bumped up. But then the next thing we shipped was pack type B, which had 2800 of those, and right. that was two posters and the add-on sticker pack and the trade paperback. So like that there there's one thing that's over 5000 orders where combining that sticker pack and that trade paperback um, were uh, that, that was like a, a basic kind of kit that we could build. Right. Um, so then, so then, when it came to somebody who had gotten a T-shirt that included Pactite B as well as the T-shirt, you're yeah. only being charged for that. That, that when they put Pactite B into that package, that's yeah. already been done. So that's not another touch, or or that's not five other touches because it contains all those items, right? Or four other touches. Is that, that the way that works? For the sake of example, that is perfect. I mean, I can't say that for sure that is exactly the way that it, it actually took place, but but that's the general that's the general idea is that you pay hourly to pre-kit um, the most common items together. Gotcha. And then that reduces the total number of touches when you're assembling your final order permutations. Right. And you know, it's really about that. It's really about decreasing the cost of that. Um, 80%, you know, the 80 20 rule, like, eight, you know, you're going to spend, you're going to spend 80% of your time and 20% of your code is at least the, per, the formulation I first heard it in. But in, in most things, it's kind of true. You know, the, the vast majority of your time is going to be spent in a relatively small percentage of uh, the, the total amount of stuff. Right. I get it. So, so, now, so, now, so for, you're basically ordering off menu when it comes to this, right? Because they, they've got their sort of on paper set. Uh, list of how they charge for stuff, but then you're like, well, what if we do this? Uh, so that's that that involves you kind of going in and talking to them one on one and 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 figuring out a solution. Is that is that right? Yeah, and you know, I have a ton of the along with the software that I wrote for this, which I kind of generalized and, and released in an open source way. If anyone's interested, I also have, and, I, and I'll share with you, Greg, mm -hmm. um, the spreadsheets that I was I used to quote. Um, oh, that would be amazing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it, I'm looking at the file now and I had, I had seven versions of the description, job description. And at first we, at first, let's see. Yeah. At first we didn't have this base kit notion in there. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, by the time we got to our seventh version, which is what, how we ended up getting the final quote, we had, yeah, base kit A, base kit B, base kit C. You should. Uh, I'll send this. I'll send this your way, Greg. Um, this should. This should be interesting. There may be some images you can, uh, or data you can pull out of this. Cool. Um, so uh, anyhow, yeah, that um, that that idea of base kits is what ended up saving us saving us a ton of money, and and just kind of understanding the, um, the pick and pack. What what pick and pack is versus and the, and the opposite of pick and pack by the way is lick and stick, <laughs> which is, which is just that there's already a box and all they do is put a label on it right and uh, send it out for you. Okay. Uh, kidding being this kind of third thing that no one really wants to talk to you about because you pay for it hourly. Gotcha. Uh, all right. Well, that's that's hugely uh, helpful and illuminating. Um, all right. So then uh, stuff goes out. Uh, uh, and uh, and then we we enter well even before stuff goes out throughout the whole thing we've been uh, in a constant 
a state of customer service as well. Um, and talk a little bit about that because sometimes, you know, it's easy to, it's easy to calculate the amount of time it's going to take you to make your thing and to build your schedule for that. And it's, and it's, it's even, you know, if you're, if you're sending out stuff, you can kind of figure out how long it's going to take you to package stuff up and, and take it to the post office and all that. But just, uh, like, how do you manage for time for answering people's questions and being a good customer service rep? I mean, I think the first thing is that you definitely want to have your own email address for the project. Right. Um, and ideally, if you know that you are the sort of person who's intimidated by a large inbox, you want someone who is not to work <laughs> with that. And there, there's someone on, on, our, on the Jonathan Colton team um, who... I've had the pleasure of working with for years named Anna Bardenstein. She um, has handled Jonathan Colton's fan mail and inbox since she took it over from me ages ago. Um, and she's much better at it than I ever was because she can, she can just cope with a giant list of stuff. It doesn't bother her. And she's really regular at checking that stuff. So Anna, Anna was our front line of customer service defense. And I'm actually looking around for a link. She and I did a, a podcast interview a few years ago about kind of crossing the 99% threshold and customer service on CodeMonkey Save World. Oh, wow. It's rare to get, it's rare to cross 99% in um, like orders delivered on almost any, on, on a project like this. Gotcha. Uh, but we had, along with our email, there were also people who were asking questions via Kickstarter and Twitter. Yep. Uh, so I had, at the time that this was happening, Anna was handling the inbox um, and replying to people when she knew the answer, and if not, she was escalating that up to me, which would sometimes trickle into those base camp to-do items, and then you know decisions from uh, us as management would happen. Um, and she was then also checking the Kickstarter page for comments and messages. Um, although I think some of the messages only you could check, right? So we we find out about those from you. Yep. Um, and the last thing I had her do was she was stalking you guys on Twitter um, and sending me updates of anything that had happened there. <laughs> if we had promised anything ridiculous or <laughs> just, you got to keep an eye on people. <laughs> and, uh, so she was, she was watching all the, all of that, that stuff too. And, uh, you know, she just is really diligent and great. Yeah. She was fantastic. Managing that. And, and that was really, I, I think without her, people would have felt a lot more in the lurch. Cause like at, at least, and, and what, another thing that she's, she's great at is kind of knowing that we don't know and just telling people like, Hey, we, we hear you, you're on a list and we'll get back to you when, when we know. Yeah. Then, well, that was oh, a, Oh, sorry. One goes out. I'm so, sorry. Say that again. I, I talked over you there. Sorry. Oh no. Just, and she was great at following through on, you know, sending out those notifications when we, um, when we did find out an answer. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that, yeah. She was amazing. Um, I learned a lot from sort of watching all that, and I tried to apply that on the uh, Kickstarters that I was running more on my own later on down the line. Um, it's like, and, and you know, kind of what you were saying, like letting people know, responding to people even if you don't have a solid answer yet is key. You know, um, it's I, I always use the airport analogy. Like if I'm at the airport and the plane is delayed, you know, if if they tell me the plane's delayed, they tell me why, and they tell me when it's gonna when it's actually gonna leave. I I, I usually you know I'm gonna groan. But I'm going to shrug. You know, stuff happens. Okay, so you know, I would rather have them replace a cracked windshield than not. Yes, so that's good. Uh, I'll, I will wait. Um, it's when they don't tell me anything 
and the the time just keeps extending and extending and I have no idea why and I don't know how long I'm in for that's when I start to get a little crazy um, so being able to kind of uh, just tell people what's going on and give them uh, a reasonable estimate of when we're gonna know or when we'll have uh, when when stuff will be delivered uh, seems to take care of most uh, I mean that's you know folks just want to know what's going on and of course they want their stuff so you got to I think that part of the appeal of the Kickstarter model is that people get to feel like they have a connection to the creator. Mm -hmm. um, and that's and and feeling feeling like someone heard you is just generally a much nicer feeling than feeling like you're writing into um, you know like a faceless inbox or a faceless comment form. Right. Um, and that's that's something that I learned that from Jonathan Colton when I started. Um, on his fan mail and kind of help you know work with Anna on it to this day, you know just answer answer everybody even if it's just to say like hey we got this uh, we received we received this from you um, and it's it could it's, you know it's just it shows respect and it, uh, it it lets people it lets people feel that they are connected in in some small way to the to this thing that they're excited about. Gotcha. Uh, no, that's great. Um, the uh, let's see what else. Um, well, what would you have done differently? Like looking back on the whole thing, is there any uh, like what what are the big lessons you learned, and is there anything you would have uh, you would have tried to do differently? Um, I mean, I would have loved to have gotten involved in the budgeting phase. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> as, and maybe maybe you know done some done some work on my line item in there. Um, I'm, <laughs> If I get involved in another one of these, I'll, I'll probably try and take percentage uh, in, at some level. Right. If I'm really integral to the to the success of the thing, um, and I mean there was there were a lot of learning experiences. I mean it would have been amazing to be able to start quoting fulfillment houses with our, um, you know, with the knowledge that we gained as a result of this. Um, we we had a surprising number of damaged books get delivered and we did need to reship mm -hmm. um, a lot of stuff especially internationally and at least if we were redoing it I would have packaged the international stuff extra durably just because those reships are so much more expensive right. um, and we uh, yeah I think I think avoiding you know avoiding that that damage or having having a clearer idea of exactly how we're going to deal with damaged items because you can't you can't avoid it entirely or or if you could it wouldn't be cost effective um but i think we were caught a little bit by surprise by um fixing up damaged items and uh what was the other what was the other thing um oh and then also you know there was a I remember going over to Jonathan's house in Brooklyn and like receiving two pallets of leftovers from the warehouse mm -hmm. and feeling just terrified when they wrote to us and like, hey, we've got, you know, we, we shipped all this, like we're tired of it, of having your stuff, we're sending it somewhere, so tell us where now. Right. <laughs> that was, that, that, that part was definitely, was, that was a little bit of a shock. Um, it was like, oh God, you know, we have to take responsibility for this whole thing now. Um, and you know, there's just a, there can be a lot of stuff, and especially you know, we we looked at how many products were required, and we ordered you know 10% often or 15% on top of that to make sure that we wouldn't run out and that we'd be able to handle breakage. 
Um, and so there, there just is a lot left over if, if you're going to do it because you, you know, you want to order everything in one batch. You don't you don't want to have to go back um, right. to the manufacturer. That's that you're going to lose money on that. Um, I mean, and if I had it to do over now, um, I would I would just spend some time really investigating the um, pre-built options that are out there. A lot of them are really good. Um, and, and it's really tempting to say, you know, like, I know, I know best I can do it myself. And, and I was younger when we worked on this and I was definitely in that phase at that time. <laughs> but there are, you know, there are a lot of people out there who have done this before and who know how to help you. Um, and there are some really like, I mean, now there are fulfillment houses that are really geared toward this at the time. At the time, Kickstarter fulfillment was something that, like, if you were a really progressive warehouse, you had a page on your website that said, like, we do that. Um, and now there's a company called Black Box out there now um, who, you know, I think that they take a little bit of a premium, but they'll, they kind of get the Kickstarter problem um, and, and will work with you. And they, they know how to, they know how to handle a lot of this stuff without worrying. Because we really did get down into the weeds. I mean, we, we, I know that I've worked with our warehouse on the way that every single thing was going to get packed, what box it was going to go in, and what way it was going to get, get shipped out. And at our scale, and at the time, that was that was a good idea. Um, and I, I think that for certain projects, it still is. But you know, that, I guess just know that know that you're not alone necessarily when you're doing this, and that you know this really is a problem that at this point people have have had for years, and, and you know the, the market has started to um, address. Right. Awesome. Uh, this has been very illuminating, sir. Is there any, uh, anything else you'd like to add? Any other, any other advice for folks playing their Kickstarters right now? Um, I mean, one, I think the other neat thing that we did was, um, we knew that we had to sign 2,600 books. Mm -hmm. Um, so part of our warehouse quote was just a warehouse that had a staging area and would allow us onto the warehouse floor to do the signing there, right? And we wouldn't sign with anyone uh, who couldn't offer that, um, and that was huge because you know it was probably oh, we signed over a literal ton of books, and we went down with with uh, helpers, and I, I think we all like had little cuts in our hands from <laughs> opening up books and spreading them out so you guys could get them signed rapidly. Um, but you know, definitely just kind of consider. Consider what it might mean for you if you're looking down the barrel of a project that's that's super large scale and you need to sign or otherwise personalize stuff. And it can be, you know, it can be optimized to a point, but um, you know, it's not just the warehouse's touches that you pay for. Yeah. It, it's your own. It's your own. Um, and the more that you can think about that in advance, if you if you're going to be really large, I think the less um, terrified you'll be by what you've committed to <laughs> yeah the uh we what on subsequent kickstarters instead of promising to have actual signed books we do signed uh, book plate stickers um mm -hmm. which become a lot easier to handle because uh you don't have to go to the warehouse to do that and handle you're handling much smaller things also i i, I did that with uh the ABC Disgusting children's book project i did with talk uh the artist on uh club monkey save world and he's in japan so there was no way we could get him to physically sign actual books, but the mm -hmm. book plate stickers, those we could ship back and forth really easily. So that worked out. But yeah, that, um, that's a good that's a good like hack on signed books. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It works out. I mean, there's. Uh, I don't. I don't think that has uh, an effect on um, on uh, on on people's interest. You know, like uh, like I, I, I've never heard of anybody saying, "Oh, I'd rather have a signed book rather than a book with a signed book plate sticker." Um, but uh, but I don't. Yeah, I don't have any hard data one way or the other. But uh, but it's worked. It's worked for us just logistically and everything else. Mm-hmm. But um, this was amazing, sir. I really appreciate yeah, it. This was good fun. You know, I'll send out, um, I'll send you the link to that other podcast about the customer service thing, and I'll give you the stats page too if you want to just look at some numbers for fun. Fantastic. So, are you still in the business? If somebody wanted to uh, talk to you about uh, organizing something like this, would you would you put yourself out there and do it again for the right project? Yes. Definitely. All right. All right. Well, then we'll include your contact info as well. <laughs> yeah. Please do. Fantastic. All right. Thanks so much, Drew. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon, Greg. All right. Sounds good. And that's it for today's podcast. We'll be back soon with another interview. In the meantime, feel free to check out kickstarter-secrets.com. And if you're interested in reaching out to Drew, you can find him at Drew underscore Westfall on Twitter. That's D-R-E-W underscore W-E-S-T-P-H-A-L. Thank you so much for listening. Information in this podcast is provided for educational purposes only. Hawkman Productions does not guarantee or warrant the accuracy, appropriateness, completeness, safety, or usefulness of any information. In particular, nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice or legal opinion. Users are always advised to consult with a lawyer regarding any legal question. The opinions expressed by interviewees are theirs alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Greg Pock or Pockman Productions. All content copyright 2016 Pockman Productions. Music composed and performed by David Libby. DavidLibby.net. D-A-V-I-D-L-I-B-B-Y dot net.